0: Alright, here we are now, and today I thought we would just brainstorm together on this subject of cultural wealth. What does it mean to have a rich culture, a rich society? A civilization that is wealthy, a civilization that has goodness to it. What is what is our ideal here? And I thought we would take our time with this. We can go slowly. We can look at a number of the metrics or sort of parameters of what culture is. We can look at a number of examples. We'll take our time with it. We'll brainstorm it together and just... See what comes to mind for you. See what sort of things you can think of as we contrast some of these metrics. So, if we ask ourselves, what would a rich culture be like? What would a good society be like? What comes to mind? What sort of place would you want to live in? What sort of town would you want to live in? What sort of things would you want to be able to do with your life? And if we look at this in a sort of basic 1, 2, 3, A, B, C sort of way, we can imagine, well, okay, let's say you're going out for dinner. And you go to the main street. And in one shop, you've got Indian food. In another shop next to it, you've got Turkish food. In the next shop along, you've got Thai food. And in the next shop, you've got big American pizza. And in the next shop, you've got Italian food. And in the next shop, you've got Mexican food. And it goes on like this on both sides of the main street. Now, your choices of what to have for dinner is rich, right? That is a wealthy culture by this one single metric of what are you going to have for dinner? Now let's sort of imagine the opposite of that, which is you go to your main street for dinner and you only have the American pizza. You don't have the others. Well, now you have less options. So this, by relativity, would be a less wealthy culture than the one with multiple varieties. Let's look at another example, which is essentially the same thing. Say you want to go out and you want to see some live music. And you go to the main strip, you go to the main drag where the live music is. And on one corner, you've got a jazz club. that's playing real hot American jazz. In the place next door, they're playing country music. And then in the place next door, you've got some... Auditorium where they're playing chamber music or classical music. And then in the next place along, there's some heavy metal or some punk bands. It's a rock house. And in the next place along, well, you're going to have some techno music or some sort of DJ that's doing electronic EDM or something of that sort of variety, more modern, more sort of dance. Now, this is the same thing as the food, right? You've got multiple choices. You've got multiple varieties. Now, from here, you can sort of start to see immediately that it's not just variety that is our metric. It's also quality. Because you can have a jazz club which is playing real, authentic, tasty Jazz and the musicianship, the, the caliber of the musicianship is really, really alive. You've got some really good, interesting musicians. And yet, you can also have a jazz club which is lacking in talent. You can have sort of student bands or sort of half-assed musicians or sort of second-rate musicians that are just sort of weekend musicians. And they haven't really honed their craft. That that difference does exist, right? That difference is there. And you could say, well, in an ideal wealthy society, you would have clubs which are incentivized to bring on really good musicians, right? If you have a jazz club, then you want to have really good musicians because then more people come and then you make More profit. You sell more drinks, you sell more tickets to shows, and it works. there's There's an incentive to quality there. Then, the opposite is true. If you bring on the amateur musicians, well, then people don't come and then it dies and the jazz club ultimately has to close. But that metric, that isn't always quite there. That difference isn't really in it. Because what you're serving up depends on the market. If there is a market for jazz musicians, if people really want to see jazz music, if there's a whole score of people who are going to go and see that jazz music no matter what, then you can still make profit from that jazz club, even putting on second-rate musicians. And in many ways, in so many ways, that is actually what defines the music industry. That is actually what defines the culture of our music. It is the market. It is the demand. And it's not as though people are sitting back and saying, oh, we need to choose something that is diverse. We need to choose something that is of a high quality. Not at all. They're sitting back and they say, okay, we need to choose something that is going to appeal to the market. So, when someone goes to open a music venue, they've got the choice, right? They can make it a jazz club, a country music club, a chamber music, orchestra club, classical music, or a EDM techno club. And their choice is going to depend on the market. This is our capitalist climate that we live in. That is what decides our culture. Now, Let's take another metric. Let's sort of swing this away from capitalism before we go down that too far. Say, instead of going out for dinner and wanting a variety of foods or going out to see music and wanting a variety of music, you say, okay, I want to go out and I want to study something. I want to have an education. Now there, the same metrics apply. You want to have a variety of options. You want to be able to study engineering Robotics, maybe they're the same thing. (laughs) Or the humanities, history, literature, English, philosophy, psychology. And the sciences, biology, physics, astronomy. Maybe astrology too, right? You would want to say... Well, if we're including variety, why not astrology? <laughs> you, could, you could say that's a, actually that's actually another insight that maybe we'll get to, right? But you want to have a variety of things that you can study. Now, there was a time in Australia when you could go to university and enroll in a course for free. There was free tertiary education. And that was under the Prime Minister of Gough Whitlam. And that was one of the defining moments in Australian politics. That was a that was an iconic moment in Australian politics where a politician actually stood up for the common people. They actually did something for real folk. The common peasant. And it had lasting effects, positive lasting effects, because if you couldn't afford to go to university, you could now go and get your education and then you're qualified for a job, which you could then work as in the rest for the rest of your life. And there was a whole generation of people who got free tertiary education and then got into higher paying jobs because of it. Because of it. And then because of that, could afford a house, could afford certain things that the higher income allowed for them, yeah, the opportunities that better education allowed for them. Now, that is a one-off moment. That was sort of something that was also crowded in its own. I mean, Gough Whitlam had his own controversies, right? You know, it's not as though he was this saint. There were also the, the other side of his policies that people didn't agree with and people didn't like. But that's that's another story for another day. But to say, okay... What's the opposite of that? Like, say you go to a place to study and they say, okay, well, you can study biology or engineering and that's it. Now, that would be the equivalent of going down to the street to have dinner and you can have pizza only. Or you go out to see some music and it's it's only the jazz club or it's only the country music club. Oh, imagine if it's only country music. Oh, What a nightmare. (laughs) So this difference of variety and quality comes up again and again. And of course, if we look at this in another way, we can say, okay, what sort of job do I want? Then the same metrics apply. You want to have a variety. You want to have the different Skill level abilities, right? You can say, okay, well, we've got entry level jobs and we've got qualified jobs, which you have to qualify for. And you've got specialist jobs. And if we just do those three tiers as basic, then you want to say, okay, well, how many jobs are there in those three tiers? Then we can add another metric of how difficult is it to qualify, because, of course, an entry-level job is not entirely entry-level. You still need to have some level of entry, some sort of experience. And then you can say, well, what does that lead to? How difficult is the job? How productive is the job? How much does the job pay? And this dovetails into economics, which is How much you earn then allows you to say, well, how much can you spend? How much disposable income do you have? How much can your money buy? Now, there was a time in Australia where you could get an entry-level job or like a trade and you could work in that job and you could save for a deposit for a house, buy the house and then pay that mortgage on that house and then own that house. And you could afford to buy a car. You could afford to pay for the kids, for whatever activities that goes along with raising kids, with having a family. You could afford to take a holiday. This is a rich society, right? This is a wealthy society. You have the variety and you have the power. Now, you could say, well, where are we now? Now, that's a sort of out of my field of commentary, right? I'm dealing with metrics. I'm not dealing with current climate state of affairs. I'm not a, I'm not a current affair speaker, right? But we could say, well, now we have a higher level of entry. You're paid less and it's more difficult to buy that house. It's more difficult to have that Australian dream of working a job, buying the house, having the family. That has actually become less accessible to us, which means we are not as good. We are not as wealthy in our society. And I think that's, that's a very real reality for us in Australia at the moment. But you could say, well, what does that mean for the arc of culture? What does that mean for the arc of our progress in our economics, in our lifestyle, in our civilization, in our cities and lifestyles. Because you notice that it's not just variety and quality that we need in all these things. It's also accessibility, right? In the example of going out to eat or going out to see music or even going out to get an education or a job, these things all sort of assume that you're going to have the variety right there in front of you as if it's a menu. Whereas in reality, the jazz club is not going to be right next to the country club. The jazz club is going to be downtown, and the country club, the country music club, is going to be uptown. Or maybe it's the opposite, I don't know. <laughs> right? And if you want to study biology, then the best university to go to is in one city. And if you want to study the humanities, then the best university to go to is in another city or another country, right? So this thing of accessibility, to have, to have all the food joints in a row, well, actually, that is sort of more common. When you're talking about a university, then it's bigger, and it's sort of like, well, it's sort of expected that they are further apart geographically. Then this thing of accessibility really comes in as a big factor. And here we would say, well, what about infrastructure? What about the actual real tangible transport, right? This is another staple of a rich society. Imagine you can say, okay, I live in my house and I want to be able to go and get something, whether it's a job, an education, a meal or some music. And what I have to do to do that is get in my car, drive within a radius of one hour driving and I've got what I need. I've got what I want. I can go to university and it's a one hour commute there and back. Now that, by some people's measures, would be accessible depending on the quality of the drive, you might say. What would the opposite of that be like? Well, let's say, instead of just driving there and being there and it's a one-hour drive and you drive back and the drive is through a national park, so it's quite nice. Instead of that, let's say, well, it's not a drive through a national park, it's a drive through bumper-to-bumper traffic-choking city and there's a lot of red lights, there's a lot of speeding up, speeding down, there's a lot of sharp turns, there's a lot of congestion. That's quite stressful. And not only that, but when you get there, so you might be late, it might take you longer than you think, but you also have to pay for parking and it's quite expensive. And then you say, okay, well, it's not worth me driving because it's stressful, it takes too long and I can't afford the parking. So I'll take the train. So you walk to the station, you get on the train and it's packed and you follow the crowds. And maybe it's a walk from the station to the place where you're getting the food, seeing the music, getting the job, getting the education. Now that is the picture of accessibility, right? That is just one, two, one spectrum side. And that indicates so much of the quality of our lives. So many people whether they know it or not, move house to be closer to the things they have. Now, imagine, imagine a society, all right, where you can walk. It's a 10-minute walk or less to everything you need. Imagine that. So, you're not even driving. You can walk to your food strip, your main road food choices. You can walk to your music strip, your music clubs. You can walk to Your place of education, you can walk to your place of work. Now, in many ways, we are actually starting to get to that. We're actually starting to say, okay, well, how do we bring things into the home? How do we use our technologies to actually make that accessible? How do we actually cut down on that transport? Because we all know there's something stressful about being in traffic, There's something stressful about having to physically go somewhere. There's so much time that's spent on that. And it is stressful, whether you're quite relaxed or not. A car naturally wants to go forward, right? A car is designed to move. It's designed to travel at 60, 70, 80 kilometers an hour. And to go bumper to bumper, well, that's congestion. That's stress. It's exactly the same as the blood pressure making its way through the veins. Now, these are some of the metrics for culture and for society. And I'd like to now take this into a deeper level. With these examples as our background, with these metrics... Let's turn this now into a metaphor and we say, okay, instead of lifestyle and physical movement and choice of action, what if we were to apply these same metrics to something like the mind or emotions? How do these metrics apply to emotions? And we can put mood and emotion together. How do we apply these metrics to imagination? How do we apply these metrics to perception? And from what I can see, it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same metric. When you have your mind, you want to be able to think a variety of things. You want to be able to think, okay, Thai food, Japanese food, Mexican food, American pizza, Indian food. And you want to be able to use those. You want to be able to say, ah, you know, I feel like Mexican food tonight. It's just my feeling. And this is our way of thinking. This is the choice of thought. This is conscious thinking. This is recognizing when you have a thought pattern that's re- repeating itself and you need to do away with it. You know, I've had pizza too often. I'm sick of pizza. I don't want to eat it so much. And you could say, well, that's not how people live. In fact, many people do just live on pizza quite literally and also metaphorically in their mind, which means they have this thought pattern which repeats over and over again long after it's been out of date, long after they should have let it go. They should have done away with it. They should have cut it out from their diet, (laughs) right? There's nothing wrong with pizza every now and then, but it's not going to be a central diet, right? If it's a central part of your diet, you're going to have problems, now, how do you create a wealthy society where there's lots of ideas, where you actually have the choice to think about things in different ways? Imagine if that was the way you thought about everything. Imagine you came to a situation and you had multiple choices. And it wasn't just like multiple choices in A, B, C, or D, but it was like you know, 500 different things. 500 different ways of analyzing it, of understanding it, of explaining it to yourself. And your whole psychology around the situation was just this vast, beautiful thing, this intricate thing, right? It's it's like you, you love jazz music and you love classical music and you love electronic dance music and you're seeing a different one each night of the week and maybe country music, you go, eh, I I get it, but I sort of don't get it, so I only do that occasionally. Imagine the mind equivalent of that. That is rich culture. Now, in so many ways, our culture of the mind, our mind tendencies collectively is not poised towards that. On the level of the mind, we are set up to only have the pizza. It's only pizza that's available. Now you could say, well, now we have free communication, now we have the internet, so this is exploding. We have lots of ideas. And that actually brings me to another fundamental point which I'm going to get to in a moment, which is where we have this tipping point where variety becomes too much. Variety actually becomes a hindrance. And that is a sort of kind of Paralysis through variety of choice or choice fatigue, we could say. And there's there's a number of ways in which we can illustrate that. But don't let me get too far ahead. Let's just say, well, okay, that's the area of the mind. Now, let's, let's move on to something else. Let's say, okay, what about emotions? What about if we had a variety of emotions and feelings and moods and we could actually sense that we had that variety? We could actually sense that today, I am in a very different mood to what I was in yesterday. At this time yesterday, what was your emotion? Can you remember? Can you sense it? Just just take the time with it. What time is it now? And just think back, what was your mood yesterday? Now, what we normally have as the default in our culture, in our society, is you're sort of set up in your environment, you're set up in your patterns of behavior, and they repeat themselves, and then that, of course, leads to the repeating patterns of moods. And in the mornings, you feel sort of the same every morning. In the lunchtimes, you feel sort of like that in the lunchtimes. In the evenings, you feel sort of like that in the evenings. And in so many ways, in many cases, it's one mood all day. It's sort of like this one overarching mood, which isn't quite acute. And there's, there's actually a lack of emotional variety. And it's in that that we have entertainment which is designed to get straight to your emotions, right? That's why it's so impactful. You see an ad for a movie or an ad for a product, and that hits your emotion. That hits on your heart. It pulls on the strings of your heart. And that's why it's so addictive, because we actually need emotional variety, when you see that ad and you get a spark of emotion even if it's a negative emotion then that's a that's a feeling that you need more of because we're lacking in our culture of that emotional variety of that emotional quality now if you recognize this for yourself this is how advertising can lose its grip on you this is one of the this is one of the core insights for transcending your culture this is this is absolutely critical wisdom that I'm sharing with you here now. If you have emotional and mood variety throughout your day which you recognize from mood to mood then when something comes to put an impact on you it actually doesn't have that much of an effect. You actually see how it affects you when you let it slide. Now, this is different, let me be very clear, this is different to having big ups and downs because that's also something that becomes its own groundhog day, right? You can say, well, Well, I have emotional variety. I I feel really happy in the morning, and then I'm I'm really terrible in the afternoon. I get really upset and lonely and depressed one day, and the next day I'm really working hard and I feel really motivated, and I've got all this emotional variety. Well, not so far, because actually, that is its own defense. That is its own non your your own inability to recognize the ups and downs. You're not you're not actually having the emotions. In that picture, you're not actually experiencing them deeply. Because when you experience a mood deeply, you're actually owning it. You're actually going in and out of it consciously. And when you have that variety, well, that's a cultural variety. All right, so we've done the mind, we've done emotion, now let's look at perception. Normally, in our culture, in your society, You have a number of places that you go and a number of things that you see and they repeat. Right? You see the same billboard over and over again. You see the same advertisement over and over again. You drive down the same street again. You're in the same office again and again and again. You see the same news feed again and again and again. And these things are changing just enough to sort of keep you interested but never enough to sort of wake you up and see through it, right? They're, they're the little sparks that you get in their difference are just just enough to keep you on edge to almost keep you interested. But really, there's no variety in these things. Really, there's no choice. Really, the the diet of our eyes, if we want to put it like that, to use the analogy of food, is like we only have pizza. And a rich culture is one where you can see lots of things. You can see a variety of things. And you could say, well, now we have this. Now it's accessible. You can jump on your phone and see images from all around the world and all different cultures, all walks of life. And the (laughs) flip side is that this is just like the person who has the emotional ups and downs, thinking that that is emotional variety. When it is not. If you're scrolling through images. On your technology device. That becomes very flat. That becomes very hollow. You're not actually seeing newness. You're not actually seeing with richness. Just in the same way. As that you're not experiencing. You're not experiencing emotions richly. And a wealthy society, a rich culture is one that sets you up to see things with fresh eyes. And my answer to that is to actually turn yourself towards the mechanisms of sight and perception. And I actually have an online course for that. You can check that out. I won't say too much of about it too much about it, but if you're interested, you can Find out more about that. And of course, the solution of saying, okay, well, how do we give a new billboard or a new adver- advertisement? How do we have that new impact so people do see things in you? Well, this is all backwards. This is not rich society. A rich, A rich culture is not defined by how often your billboard advertisement changes. Right? It, it, it's absurd. It, it's outrageously absurd to say it like that. To think that, ah, oh, like, like imagine, imagine you were trying to say that. Imagine you were like the tour guide of your town, right? You're giving someone a tour of your town and you're saying, okay, we have a wonderful variety of foods where you can have dinner. We have a wonderful variety of places where you can hear music. We've got a wonderful education system. We've got a wonderful workforce where you can choose all these different jobs. And the most wonderful thing about this town is that we have a new billboard advertising every week. It's always so fresh. I always feel like I'm seeing something new on the billboard. Right? Like, imagine the reaction of being in the tour bus and hearing the tour guide say that. You... You would have to think they're giving like they're taking the piss, right? <laughs> like you wouldn't take anything they say seriously after that. And yet that's the culture that we're basically living in in the in terms of our perception. The richness of our sight. And I mean I'm emphasizing sight, but also goes for for sound. And for smell. I mean, smell is so neglected. Smell has been abused by mainstream culture. Just, just absolutely downright dragged through the mud. Don't even get me started on smell. That's a whole nother conversation. But to have a rich society is to be able to see things with fresh eyes. It's it's to be able to see the world anew. So that's mind, emotion, perception. Let's now go to. The deeper level. What about consciousness? What does it mean to have a culture where your consciousness has variety, depth of quality, accessibility, and just an overall general freedom? Imagine the quality of your consciousness when it has the equivalent of being able to choose between 10 different places to have dinner, to see music, to get an education, to find work. Now, perhaps you might say, well, how do you define consciousness at this stage exactly Doster. And really, I'm leaving that for you to sense for yourself. In fact, it doesn't really matter so much at all what the definition is for this conversation. Because if you can follow along these differences of mind, emotion, and perception, then the logical step beyond that is consciousness, or at least one of the logical steps beyond that is your consciousness. And we could say, consciousness is your ability to traverse new things. It is your agency. It is your experience. It is your sense beyond the eyes. It is that thing that can't be put into words. It is that thing that's most precious to you, most core, beyond the surface levels of life. And what does it mean to have a rich culture which actually allows for that freedom? What does it mean to have a culture that is encouraging a rich consciousness? Variety in imagination, variety in desire. Right? We could take desire as just a small snippet of your consciousness. And there it becomes exceedingly clear that culture is set up, mainstream society is set up to give you just a few little desires and to make those acutely sharp and then to associate them with a product What if you could have a variety of your desires? What if it, if instead of just being after food and sex, you had a whole huge range of desires. you had like you had like 500 different desires. That would be a very different quality of consciousness to the one that is encouraged by mainstream society. Now this does bring me nicely back to a point which I needed to make earlier when we were talking about the variety of mind in particular. Now you could say dosta say instead of just the main street of food you had like 500 food places and 500 different music venues and 500 mind, 500 emotions and you know and all of it becomes too much and all of it becomes like well it's overwhelming right you have this this dazzling uh you know like like imagine times square where you've got all the lights and all the busy it's just it's just uh, and it becomes noise it becomes like like this just just trash none of it's worth anything hang on a second my battery's dying i need to change my camera battery okay sorry i just had to change the battery on the camera it's quite limited so this this is an important point let's get back to this so you've got dazzlement bewilderment by too many options by too much variety well now that's exactly where consciousness comes in when you have agency when you have deeper perception simplicity emerges from chaos Ease of choice becomes accessible to you when you are conscious, when you are aware. This is exactly the definition of consciousness. Like turning up to the bewildering dazzlement of all these choices can instill a feeling of overwhelmment, of hurt, of impulse, of reaction, of, uh, stress. Or, it can give you a sense of beauty. It can be like, wow, what a time to be alive. It can give you a sense of awe. It can give you a sense of amazement. It can give you a sense of, wow, this is rich, right? I have so many options. Isn't it wonderful to have this variety? But those two differences is in the quality of your consciousness. It's in the quality of your mind, the quality of your emotions, the ability of your perception. And the thing that sits behind all those things is awareness or consciousness for want of a better word. And society, mainstream culture, is not set up to encourage clarity on that front. It's actually set up to give you a sense of overwhelmment, to give you a reaction which is impulsive, to give you a reaction which is reactory. When you're conscious, when you're aware, you're not reacting to things. You're not overreacting. You're not responding. You're actually considering. You're actually assessing the situation, you're actually sensing where your clarity is, right? The difference would be, okay, we've got 10 choices here for dinner. Am I going to have Mexican or pizza or Thai? And the unconscious version of that is, uh, oh, I think I want Mexican, but I had it the other day, and oh, I want to have pizza, but I didn't like it, but then I did like it, and I think, oh, I've had too much of it, and oh, I should have Thai, but I'll, I'll just go for Indian, Right, that's one sort of picture of it. Then the other picture of it is, okay, here are my choices for dinner. Let me just look at each one, consider each one and gently, smoothly sense, what is it really that I feel that I want for dinner? Ah, oh, yeah, you know, I feel like Mexican tonight. And it might be that, uh, you know, now that I've said that, I can sense how it is that it feels to say that in my mind. And there's something distasteful about that. What is it? Uh, It is that I actually don't want Mexican. I don't want fast food. I actually want to go home and cook for myself. I don't want any of this. And that is exactly the example of Not just the food choice, but also the mind choice. How do I consciously think through what it is that's happening? And you can actually use this for a life direction, right? You can do the same thing for what you want to study, for what sort of job you want to have. Okay, here are my options for jobs. I've narrowed it down. I think this is what I want to do for a job. Now, let me sense how it feels for me to say that. Can I really feel this job? Can I feel this direction in my life? Can I sense my life direction? Can I see that picture? Can I see how it is in my mind? And this is what it's like to consider something consciously. This is what it's like to think clearly. This is what it's like to use your mind, your emotions, your feeling, your mood, your perception, your sight. Or just broadly, your consciousness to navigate through this culture now this is just one way of going through this conversation because we can say this is how culture is in a time and place and we can say this is how culture should be right we can discuss that should we have a jazz club or a country club what sort of music should we have And we can say, well, this is something that's very wrong. This is something that's very destructive. This is something that's lacking. This is something we should actually do away with. And we can discuss, well, how do we get there? How do we build these businesses, these institutions, these collective communities, all these groups of people? How do we interact with each other in these ways? But at least... Here for this conversation, now we've got the metrics. Now we've got the dynamics. Now we've got some of the examples for what's going on. The actual population of it doesn't matter. The the actual examples don't matter. It's more important that we understand the, the mechanisms of society. And of course, ultimately, we should be aspiring to the utopia. I am a strong believer in the potentiality of an absolutely glorious utopia for humanity. This would be a rich culture that comes from all corners of the world that is authentic True to its traditions and its history. Accessible, available, that comes freely with a wealthy and overflowing economics. And occurs without a harsh impact on the environment. That occurs and exists and is sustainable without depleting natural resources. And I believe that world is possible. I believe it's going to take work. I believe there's many important issues that we have to overcome. Of course, as there always is, I believe that world is possible. So those are a few thoughts on cultural wealth. I think I've hit these examples hard enough. I hope I haven't beaten them to death. And of course, we could have done it with completely different examples. We could have used completely different way of populating these metrics, right? I hope you can see that, right? There's a difference between the spreadsheet and the numbers that you type into a spreadsheet, right? You can always change the numbers if you understand the structure of the spreadsheet. So that's what I've hoped to illustrate. Yeah, there's definitely more to say about this. This is an ongoing conversation. In some ways, this is is the conversation of the ages, right? How should we organize ourselves collectively? It's really the fundamental question that we're asking. And we're always asking this. We will ask it again. We're always assessing this. But at least that's a start. At least that's a, or at least one way into it. All right. Thanks very much for tuning in. Please do leave me a comment. I don't know if anyone's listening unless I get a comment. So I always appreciate those and I do respond when I can. So thanks very much. Hope you're having a good day. And that's all I have to say for now.